the, the key statement Jesus makes, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So let's begin here by looking at the nature of true discipleship. Look at verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So who is that? Who are the Jews who had believed in him? We'll look back at verse 30. So he's been speaking, teaching, unless you believe I am, you'll die in your sins. He explains that he's going to be lifted up. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So as Jesus is teaching these glorious truths about his person and work, many Jews are hearing and they are responding with faith, right? Sounds very promising. They're believing in him. It seems very positive. And this still happens today, doesn't it? People make great initial responses to Jesus. Many people believe and flock to Jesus. Seems that's what's probably going on in this passage. It says many believed. It's very easy to get caught up in a movement, excitement about Jesus and join the crowd, if you will. And they're doing so, and people still do so, for all kinds of reasons. Some come to him out of ignorance, some just casually, some even with, with sincerity. And so Jesus here responds in order to give them a test for true discipleship. Look at the rest of verse 31. So he now addresses this group, this, this many people that are believing him from verse 30. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He says, truly my disciples, or really my disciples, as opposed to being a false disciple. There are many who are not really his disciples. So when you think of the world, you should not think of it as believers and unbelievers, two groups of people. John is telling us you should think of it as unbelievers, false believers, and true believers. There are three groups of people in the world. And so Jesus is given this test. He wants true disciples to be strengthened and comforted and helped. And he wants false disciples to repent and become his true disciples. So let me just insert here that these truths we're going to talk about this morning apply to, to every one of us in this room. Scripture calls us repeatedly to examine ourselves to see if we are indeed in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. So these truths are essential to help us do that. And my purpose this morning is not to shake you up and make you doubt your salvation. Some of you have very tender consciences and, uh, like me, are very prone to morbid introspection and um, easy to, to doubt. That's not my goal this morning. Others um, hardly ever get this a thought, ever look inside and evaluate the condition of, of their soul. So my desire this morning is that if you're a true believer, 
through this test that we're going to look at, you would know the sweetness and the, the, the precious experience it is to be tested by Scripture and to come out saying, I'm real. I, I, I see it in my life. I'm, I'm real. That's a glorious and a precious thing. So that's my goal um, and my desire. These truths are also important for how we minister to others around us, not just for our own lives and evaluation of our own condition. They help us think clearly about the nature of faith and discipleship. They guard us from affirming any profession of faith. Somebody says they believe, okay, I just take it at, at face value. They equip us with tools necessary to help one another to discern the reality of discipleship and the condition of our souls. They guard us from thinking wrongly when people defect and turn away from Christ. So these very important truths we're going to look at this morning. I want to point out one more thing before we look at this specific test Jesus gives. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, when he speaks of disciples, he does not mean some other category or class of believer. Like you believe, and then you're saved, and then you really mature to an advanced level of Christianity called discipleship. That category is foreign to Jesus and foreign to John. To be a true believer is to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be saved and a true believer. That's made very clear in the rest of chapter 8 because as these people are going to be exposed as being false disciples, Jesus is going to call them children of the devil and murderers of Christ. So if you're not a true disciple, it doesn't mean you're just not at that advanced level of Christianity. It means you're not saved. You're not born again. So in this verse, Jesus gives the test of a true disciple and it is this, perseverance. Perseverance. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It's not how one begins, but how one perseveres, which testifies to the genuineness of his faith. The one fruit that you cannot counterfeit in the Christian life is the fruit of perseverance. That's it. Many people begin with great professions of faith. They spring up quickly. You think of the parable of the, of the soils. But evidence for the genuineness of their faith and the genuineness of their discipleship will be as they persevere, as they bear fruit. And that truth is meant to spur you on. It's meant to be a, a spur to, to keep you from being casual, from, from spiritual drift. Wake up. It's, it's serious. It's important. We're meant to actively persevere. There's also much comfort here for believers. If you're a true believer, you might know the, the time and point in which God saved you. He made you born again. I mean, it's crystal clear in your mind. You think back, there's no question that it was, it was there that it happened. That's a sweet thing. But... Others of you, if you're like me, you don't have a clue when this happened. 
you look back and think, like, maybe it's there or there or there or there or there, or you have no idea. The truth we're going to look at this morning will tell us don't place too much weight on that initial experience, as good and as important as it was. And don't let it trouble you too greatly if you cannot pinpoint when that happened. The truest evidence you are his, that you are saved, is not necessarily that you had great intensity in the initial experience of conversion or your ability to remember it, but the fact that you are still walking with him today. That is the evidence that you know him. The way you know you're alive is not by digging up your birth certificate and pointing to it. I'm alive, see? It's right there. Nobody does that. You're breathing, right? You're alive. It's the same thing spiritually. So what do we mean by persevere? Our verse says, if you abide in my word. I want to take these words one at a time. What does it mean to abide? I think we hear this word abide, we... we we tend to think of some mystical experience. I'm, I'm abiding in, in, in Christ. Um, some uber-spiritual experience called abiding. This word abide simply means remain. Continue. That's all it means. True disciples remain. True disciples continue. But the question is, continue in what? In their profession? Continuing saying, I'm a disciple, I'm a disciple? No. What do they continue in? Look at the rest of the verse. If you remain, abide in my word. True disciples remain in Christ's word. So that's the next question. What is Christ's word? Notice that it is singular. It doesn't say my words, but my word. I take that to represent the totality of Christ's teaching, the sum of his teaching, all that he has declared to be true. So you tell me, what are some things that could include Christ's word? Just think of the Gospel of John. What have we seen so far? What might he be referring to? Some categories here. His deity. His deity. Excellent. We just saw a few verses ago. Yep. What else? His authority over all things. Absolutely. He's the son, the representative of the father. What else? Divided my word. Necessity of the new birth. Yeah. That's a big one. The condition of man. The true spiritual condition of man. Our sin, our sin nature, our guilt, our slavery to sin, our need for what Christ has come to accomplish. What else? In the beginning was the Word. Yep. He is the fullest, final revelation of, of God. Yep. What else did Christ give? He didn't just give teaching. He gave commandments, right? Promises, truth, to live by, to believe, and to obey. A true disciple remains, perseveres in Christ's Word by faith and all that he has spoken. The totality of what Christ has declared. 
So if that is what abide means, and that's what his word means, then what does it mean to abide in his word? What is that? That's our next question. It means to persevere in your faith and dependence on all he has spoken. The believers in, in our passage this morning are going to reveal that they're false disciples because almost the very next verse they begin to reject what Christ has spoken. He starts to talk about their spiritual condition. Now, like Nicodemus, I don't like that. I back it up. I'm, I'm out of here. False disciples are eventually exposed as they are offended by Christ's teaching. It confronts some cherished sin, some idolatry, or some truth in the, in the scriptures that just doesn't align with the way I perceive reality. I don't like that, and I push it away. That's what false disciples do. And the flip side of that is that young believers, the fact that you're a young believer means you don't know everything. So we're not saying you have to know everything. There's much to learn. There is still much for us to learn. The evidence of the reality of their faith is that as they are tested, as Christ's word confronts them, they respond with growth. They respond with faith. They respond by receiving it, and repenting, and growing more and more. So remaining in his word means persevering in his teaching. But I think it means a little bit more as well. Flip over to John 15. We're going to be going to John 15 a good bit this, this morning. Look at verse, verse 4. If you abide in my word, certainly it represents his teaching. John 15, look at verse, verse 4. He says, abide in me. So in John 8.31, it said, abide in my word. Here he says, abide in me, in my person. Abiding in Christ's word is synonymous with abiding in his person. It means to persevere in dependence on his person and life. Jesus says that true disciples remain connected in a connected relationship with him such that his life fills them and nourishes them. That's what it means to be born again. You have the life of Christ filling you. How does that happen? It's as you stay connected to him, receiving his life. But how do you do that? What does that look like? Look down at verse 7. If you abide in me, there it is. You have to abide in Christ, stay connected to him. By how? What do you do? And my words abide in you. How do Christ's words abide in you? Remain, stay filling you, nourishing you, controlling you. As you constantly depend on them and abide in, in them. In other words, to abide in Christ's word is to abide in Christ. To stay in a connected relationship with Christ. And as you persevere in this relationship with Christ, he fills you. He nourishes you with his truth, his spirit. And you become a fruitful vine, bearing lush fruit of holiness to God. But there are many who look like they're connected to him. They're in the churches, they're, they're disciples, like in this passage. But they don't bear fruit because they don't remain in him because they don't remain in his word look at verse 2 of chapter 15 every branch in me 
that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he, he prunes. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown in the fire. It's judgment language. The point here is that these are not genuine believers. They're in Christ in the sense that they appeared to be a part of his people. But why aren't they bearing fruit? It's because they're not connected to him. Why? Because they're not trusting his word. They are failing the test of true disciples. And who is the clearest example of this in all the Gospels? He looked like he was a part of the 12. It's Judas. I think that's probably who Jesus has primarily in mind in this, in this text. So let me wrap up with a, a couple summary implications. What does this practically look like in our lives? What does it practically look like? Number one, it looks like trusting obedience. To remain in Christ's word means that you continue to depend on Jesus' words as they really are the words of God. And if they are that and you truly believe that, the result will be you bring your entire life up under subjection to them. It would be a contradiction to say you believe them and you don't order your life by them. Look over at chapter 14, verse 15. You know these verses. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. The ideas of guarding his word, observing his word, ordering your life by his word. Look over at John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's how you demonstrate your love, just as Christ kept the Father's commandments and abides in his love. We go to a number of texts. Go over to John, 1 John chapter 3. It's another place we're going to be going quite a bit this morning. 1 John 3. I'll show you this one more. This one just knocks the ball out of the park. 1 John 3. Look at verse 6. Abiding in Christ's word looks like the practical obedience of your life. 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him, there it is, connected to Christ by faith in his word, depending on him, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. To abide in his word is to live a life of trusting, submissive obedience to the lordship of Christ doesn't mean you're perfect by, by no means. It just means that the primary drive of your life is this. It's what you want. It's what you desire now. I love him because he loved me first. And I love him so much in response to that that I want to lay my life down. Oh, I fail a lot. But man, I don't want to. My desire is to bring my whole life up under the Lordship of Christ, and all that he has declared to be true. That is a true disciple. That's what a true disciple looks like. 
Number two, it looks like a life of dependence on Christ's word. To remain in his word is the idea of feeding, being nourished by, like a, like a branch, sucking and sucking the, the, the juices of the vine of his word. You see in the scriptures your only hope of life, and you continually feed yourself on them. Unbelievers are not interested in feeding on Christ like this. They don't sense their need for his life in them. They'll gladly receive the removal of consequences from sin, but they're not interested in or hunger for a relationship with the triune God in his word by faith. This doesn't mean you don't go through dry seasons. Does it mean that it's always exciting or easy sailing in your study of the Bible. It just means this is deep down what you truly crave and, and desire. It's the scripture. Studying the scripture is always a drudgery for you. Do you hunger for it like a babe hungers for, for milk? Is it the pattern of your life to crave knowing God through his word? That's what a true disciple does. Number three, it looks like a life of dependence on Christ's crossword. It looks like a life which is in regular confession of sin. That's why it doesn't mean perfection. It means you recognize it, and when you see faults, you are quick to turn. Rely on Christ's perfect sacrifice. If you're in 1 John, flip over to chapter 1, verse 9. You know these verses. This is the evidence of true believer. If we are confessing our sins, it's the pattern of your life. A confessing person is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing that you may not sin. That's the drive of a believer. But if anyone does sin, you're still in the flesh. You're going to sin. What do you do? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. True disciple abides in his word, in his person, in his life, and all that he accomplished on your behalf. You don't just begin there. You live there in confession of sin and dependence on, on his cross. So that's the test of a true disciple. And as you consider your life or other people, Despite what profession that might be made, if there's little interest in knowing him in this way, we have genuine reason to be concerned. If you're a disciple, there's need for growth, absolutely. It's what it means to be a disciple. But you should be able to identify these realities in your life and in the lives of those around you. So go back to our text, John 8. Let's move on now to the privilege of true disciples. That was the test. Here's the privilege. Look at verse 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Jesus now zooms into this group of true disciples, those who remain in his word, and he says that those who abide in him in this way will know the truth. Truth is used five times in chapter 8. It characterizes Jesus' words. It means it's in accord with reality. It's the very words of, of the Father. If you 
remain in my word, you will know the truth. But I think something else here is, is going on with what Jesus means by, by truth. Because the promised result is that you're going to be set free. So Jesus did not just come to give us more information, right? Our biggest problem is not just that we lack information. Well, that's part of the problem. We need God to speak to us. That's not our biggest problem. Our problem is bondage to the power and dominion of sin, what we're going to see in just a minute. And this problem penetrates the very core of our being, a love for and practice of, of sin. And no amount of information can fix that, right? So the Old Testament law was truth, but it was powerless to change the soul of man on its own. The scriptures are truth, but apart from what Christ has come to accomplish, they cannot free people. So I think when Jesus says truth here, you'll know the truth. He means specifically the truth of me and what I've come to accomplish. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. It refers to the gospel truth of Christ. You abide in my word, you'll know the gospel, the gospel truth of, of me, my person and work. And look at the rest of, of the verse. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Say free from what? Free from a life of sin. See, our greatest problem is slavery to the power and desires of sin. So what does that mean to be enslaved to sin? It does not mean that you're being forced to sin against your own will. As though you're kicking and screaming, oh man, you're making me sin again, you're making me sin again. Nobody sins like that. To be enslaved to sin means your will is enslaved. Your want to is enslaved. Sin is what brings you delight. It's what you love. It's what your life is all about. It's the natural condition of man. I remember hearing a good illustration once. Jumping out of an airplane without a parachute may feel like incredible freedom, right? No restraints, man. I mean, just me and the wind. That's not freedom, right? Why? Because you're enslaved to gravity. You're going to, you might experience a sense of freedom, but it ends in destruction. That's not freedom. It's not freedom to live however you want if it ends in damnation. That's not freedom. This is the freedom that sin offers you. But true freedom is to be set free from a life of sin which ends in destruction. That's what Christ promises here. It's, it's not a freedom to do whatever you want, but a freedom now to want what you ought to want. It's a freedom that transforms the deepest core of your being. True freedom is not only living a life of obedience to Christ, it's loving living that kind of a life. True freedom is enjoying the freedom to enjoy life to the max and not be ashamed for it at your death. That's true freedom. D.A. Carson put it succinctly when he wrote, true freedom is... Not the liberty to do anything we please, but liberty to do what we ought. It's a new ability. But it's more than that. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. New desires. That is true freedom that Christ offers. And that's the nature of true discipleship. 
It perseveres in his word, in his gospel, and as it does, it's liberated through the new birth and the power and dominion of sin. From the penalty of sin and the power of sin in your life and progressively from its presence in your life until you are redeemed at the resurrection. A true disciple has new desires. Desires for holiness, desire not to sin. Sin, though, still wages war. And if you're a believer, sometimes sin wages even more war in your life than it did before you came to Christ. Doesn't mean there's not a war. Sometimes sin is flailing the, its tail like an angry dragon in your life. Temptations. It just means the deepest desire of your heart now has changed. It's not that. It's Christ. You want to obey him, love him. What it means to be freed from the power of sin. Hey, Mike, yeah. just real quick on the on what Carson said here, and he says, "But the liberty to do what we ought." And I, I can remember somebody else had a quote that was very similar to this. I can't remember who it was. It always stuck with me. But it was the power to do what we ought mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. not just the liberty to do what we ought. But then, yeah. I, then we have the power yep. to do what's right it, through Christ, who mm-hmm. strengthens us. And Amen. Yeah. Amen. It's good. There's a new ability through the Spirit, through the new birth, and then there's new new desires. Absolutely. The problem is that not all not all people realize this is their need. So go on to the next point. The hindrance to true discipleship. We'll go through these quickly. Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, We are offspring of Abraham have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? They respond first with a false assurance in their pedigree. We're seed of Abraham. Jesus, what are you talking about? They hear Jesus' description and they are offended. They, they respond with defensiveness. They say we've never been enslaved to anyone. And you read that, you probably think, what are you talking about? <laughs> There's not a nation the Jews haven't been enslaved to, Right? Um, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Rome at this present time. I don't think they have forgotten that. At the Feast of Booths, they just celebrated they celebrated their deliverance from Egypt. So I don't think they're talking about political bondage here. I think they hear Jesus talking about a spiritual kind of bondage. They say, Jesus, what are you talking about? We're seed of Abraham. We're not in spiritual bondage. We don't need liberation from spiritual captivity. And beyond this, they were people who had the scriptures. They had the law. What do you mean we need truth to be set free? We're Jews. We have the law. You hear something similar to this in, in Luke 3, 8. John the Baptist says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up Abraham. That's their presumption. We're Jews. Of course we're going to be saved. You hear things like this in Romans. Paul attacks them in Romans 2. They boast in the law. We have the law. Paul says it's not the possessors of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law. Does it matter that you have the law? That doesn't save anyone. Romans 9, he tells them not all Israel is Israel. Just because you're descended from Abraham doesn't mean you're really his offspring. 
they have no desire for this kind of Messiah because of their false assurance and their pedigree. They also have false confidence in their spiritual condition. Look at the rest of the verse. They say, how is it that you say you will become free? We have all these privileges. How can you say we're in spiritual bondage? That's what Nicodemus did, right? Jesus says, unless you are born from above, you'll not enter the kingdom. He says, what are you talking about? He's blown away by it. And Jesus says, are you not the teacher in Israel? And shouldn't you know these things? These truths of the spiritual condition, even of the Jews, was clearly taught in the Old Testament. You need the new covenant work in your life. But they were hardened to it. They had false confidence in their spiritual condition. So many today are in the same, the same place. So Jesus moves on in the last verses to give now the necessity for true discipleship. Why do you need true discipleship? He responds to both of these things that they're wrongly resting in. He, he first deals with the denial that they're enslaved, and then he deals with their confidence that they're seed of Abraham. He begins with the problem of, of slavery. Look at verse 34. The evidence. How do, how, what's the evidence that they're enslaved to sin? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, it's literally everyone who does sin, is a slave to sin. Jesus says, you want to have proof that you're enslaved to sin? Look at your lives. They practice sin. It, it means it's the basic pattern of your life. A, a practice and a doing of sin. Flip over. we got a couple of It's so important. First John 3 again. First John 3. Verse 7. little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Whoever practices sinning, does sin, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. How? By verse 9, no one born of God through the new birth. The problem with the Jews and the rest of mankind is that they're seed of the devil characterized by what characterizes heaven. D.A. Carson again said, the despotic master is not Caesar, but shameful self-centeredness and evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the creator. In Jesus' view, Caesar himself is a slave. So that's the evidence of slavery. And then there's also a cost, verse 35. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains. Slaves were considered to be a part of the household, but they weren't like a family member. Their name didn't pass down with the family. They had no inheritance with the family. They had no permanent membership in the household. The son did. He was a permanent member of the home. He possessed the family's name, had rights to the inheritance. It's a general custom. Everyone knew at that time. And Jesus is applying it to the Jews. He said, you might be seed of Abraham, but the fact that your lives are devoted to sin prove that you're slaves of sin. And you're not his spiritual children. You're rather like the slave woman, Hagar. Abraham had other children, right? But one was in bondage. Hagar and her son Ishmael. You might be descendants of Abraham, but you're more like 
Ishmael. You don't get the inheritance. Not all descended from Israel are, are Israel. You, you must be born again. You may be Jews, but you're slaves, and you will not remain. But the Son remains. Jesus remains as the perfect Son. And that brings us to the verse 36, the only hope. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So enslaved are we that we need help from the outside, from none other than the perfect Son of God. Why did Jesus come into the world? 1 John 3.8. Remember what it said? To destroy the works of the devil. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not just forgiveness of sin. That is the new birth, transformation of your nature, freeing you from the captivity to sin. It's good news, guys. And look how it ends. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Truly free. Really free. Not like the superficial freedom of the Jews, but real life your souls as his true disciples. It begins, ends now in verses 37 to 38. Let me just read it. I know you're offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Speak of what I've seen from my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. He says, fraternity is important. Your descendants are important, but it's a spiritual lineage. I'm from my father, and I act just like him. You act like the devil because you're from him. Your actions testify to your spiritual lineage. So three vital truths about true discipleship. It's a weighty passage, but man, it's an important passage. It's a comforting passage for true believers. Again, you're, you're not there. I'm not there. We're not perfect, but if you've been set free from sin, you, you have new life, new desires, new power, new ability direction. The lordship of Christ is what governs and drives you. Any questions, comments before we, before we go? Real quick, Michael, my mind yes. went to Genesis 3 okay. and just how God provided loving provision for, for Adam and Eve. It felt like freedom to disobey him, mm. but it was like immediate slavery. And and just how we're so quick to try to step outside the proverbial Eden when in that garden is, is where we do have freedom. And it's just, I don't know, just like our own life, it's so deceptive yeah. to think that liberty, worldly liberty, is freedom at all. It's just right. a lie. It is the lie of sin is that true life is experienced away from God. False believers come to, to the gospel to get God off their backs. True believers come being brought to God in a reconciled relationship to Him. Yeah. I had a quick question. So, when the Jews said we've never been enslaved to anyone, you're talking about like spiritual slavery. Is that like, like juxtaposed to like pagans? Is that kind of? I think so. Think about it. Yeah, they they would have thought of. Yeah, the Gentiles, like, of course, they're enslaved. They worship idols. They don't have the Torah. They're not of the seed of Abraham. Right. But certainly, there's privileges to being a Jew. Sure. Paul talks about that over and over again. But they failed in that they, they failed to receive it by faith. They thought it was by works. They relied on their own condition, their own privileges rather than being driven away from it to ultimately to Christ, who it was promising. Thank you. Yeah, that's good.
person quote goes back to the idol of self-worship. And it just doesn't seem like that was super well grasped. That all idols are not made of wood or stone or or metal. That it's actually deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Yeah, Carson's point reminded me of Edwards. Edwards said that the mind is nothing, the will is nothing more than the mind choosing, and the mind will only choose what it perceives to be the highest good. And the way we choose in ourselves and our sins and ourselves, and just the glory of Christ that we've done, now we've been set free to, to serve and to choose Him. Yeah. We couldn't do that in our sin. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. New birth, your eyes are open. See Him as He is. Love Him. And, uh, you're a disciple, you got a long way, long way to go, but you press into him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray that through this passage you would bring great comfort, sweetness, and a spur that we would press into Christ. Oh, we don't know him like we should. We don't love him like we should. Help us to grow. If there be any in here that don't know you in this way, that you would awaken them. And then, Lord, you would equip us to be faithful ministers to, to others. We love you. Prepare us for the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.